chapter 11 and our study this evening will be verses 1 to 26, mainly verses 1 to 9, but we'll refer to verses 10 to 26 as well. Uh, Just thinking simply this evening of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. Well, as I said earlier, tonight marks something of a milestone in our study of the book of Genesis as we come to the end of what's widely regarded as the second major part of the book. Genesis 1-3 to told us about the creation of the universe and about life in paradise, the relationship that human beings had with God at the very beginning. And it also told us then how that paradise was lost by Adam and Eve falling for the temptations of Satan falling into sin. Genesis 4 to 11 has shown us then the impact that sin has had upon the world. Remember a couple of months ago we considered the tragic incident and the horrible incident of Cain uh, murdering his brother Abel. And then we saw how the, the wickedness of man increased upon the earth to the point where God decided to destroy the earth with the flood and start the human race again with Noah and his family. And after the flood, as we saw last week, God promised that he would be patient with human beings, despite the fact that sin remained in their hearts. Never again, God said, would the whole world be destroyed in the way that it was by the flood, even though human beings remain sinful. We saw last week and again this morning how God blessed the human race post-flood, how he enabled the sons of Noah to uh, dramatically and, and rapidly uh, repopulate the earth and for the human race to expand. But despite God's blessing, friends, the world at large remains a dark place where the impact of human sin hangs heavy. And for that reason, the book of Genesis is about to turn our attention away from the world and the darkness and sin of the world. And instead, when we come back in due course to Genesis, we'll see that the focus, uh, the camera zooms in more tightly than ever, if you like, on one particular family. A family that God is going to use to bring redemption into the world. He does that, of course, through the family of Abraham, or Abram, as he was known at first. But before focusing on the life of Abraham, Genesis 11 shows us one more example of humanity's pride and sin. It's symbolized for us in this place called Babel. Babel is the same location that eventually became known as Babylon later in the Bible. And you could say that the entire history of of humanity, the entire history of the world is symbolized in two cities. The city of Jerusalem and the city of Babylon. Jerusalem is the city of God's people, the people that came through eventually through the line of Abraham. Jerusalem was where God's people gathered, where they worshipped him, where sacrifice was offered in his name. And eventually where our king came and died outside the city gates to save his people. Babylon, on the other hand, as we were thinking even in our reading from Revelation, it is the city of man, it's the city of the world. The city that is against God, fighting God and attacking God's people. And that's why, as we read earlier in in Revelation 18, we see that strong word of judgment against Babylon. 
But Genesis 11, friends, shows us that Babylon is a defeated enemy. And that despite man's pride, God will eventually get the final say in this world. And so let's think, first of all, this evening about the arrogance of human ambitions. The arrogance of human ambition. As we saw this morning, Genesis 10 tells us about the nations scattering across the earth. But we have to turn to Genesis 11 uh, to see how that scattering actually happened. If you look at verse 1 of Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same speech or the same words. So what we're about to read here explains what we've read in in Genesis 10. Because in Genesis 10 we read about nations and languages. And so here in Genesis 11 we're being told uh, what happened to cause those nations and languages to spread. Notice verse 2. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The plain of Shinar is about 50 miles south of modern day Baghdad in the land of Iraq between uh, the two great rivers, uh, historically speaking, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Notice it says there in verse 2 that as people moved there, they settled there. They settled there. People moving east, we've seen already, is a bit of an ominous sign in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were forced to move east uh, when they were banished from Eden. Cain had to move even further east because of his sin of murdering his brother. And these people again move east and that's an ominous sign in itself. And even more ominous is the fact that having moved to this plain in Shinar, they stay there. They settle there. In fact, verse 4 shows us that they specifically do not want to scatter. Look what it says in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These people want to stay together and they want to make a name for themselves. Whose name isn't mentioned in their plans? God's name. God's word, God's will is ignored in the plans that these people make. Because God, of course, had specifically commanded human beings after the flood. Genesis 9 verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Same command that he had given to Adam in the beginning. Fill the earth. Don't just stay in one place. Scatter. As my image bearers go and reflect my image and, and be my image bearers all across the earth that I have made. And instead of that, these people decide we're going nowhere. We'll stick together and we will live for the glory of our own name. And so they set about creating this city and the tower that went with it. Uh, and this would have been at a time in history when civilizations were beginning to develop larger uh, cities and dwelling places. And it has to be said that what these people begin working on was very impressive. It's a good example most likely of the expertise and the imagination and the the technological innovation of the ancient world. We tend to think, we're we're very ignorant, uh, we tend to think that people who lived thousands of years ago were all very inferior and really very stupid compared to us. 
that they just all lived in caves or tents and really didn't accomplish very much. And you have to wait until electricity came along and the internet came along before anything important or exciting really happened. Well, of course, that's not true at all. If you take time to read about the ancient civilizations like Mesopotamia or Babylon or Egypt, you realize that these people were very intelligent, very ambitious, and they created all kinds of amazing things. Notice verse 3 says here that they made bricks which they burnt thoroughly. The plain of Shinar didn't have any stones as such that you would, that you would use elsewhere, but it had lots of clay. Uh, as I say, it lay between these two rivers, and uh, because of the, the impact of the flood, we can uh, presume and assume that there was large deposits of this clay that they could make for bricks. It also says that they had bitumen for mortar. Uh, that's asphalt. This is the, the first example of people, if you like, tapping into the Iraqi oil reserves, which millions of people have been doing ever since. Uh, and so they're, they're creative. They're innovative. They, they use the resources that they have. And the city and the tower that they then built with their bricks and mortar was probably going to be stunning and beautiful. Or at least it would have been if they had finished it. Uh, Most commentators are in agreement that what they were probably attempting to build was a ziggurat. I I put a a picture of a ziggurat into the WhatsApp group this morning with a little bit of an explanation. Uh, Ziggurats were common across ancient cultures like Mesopotamia. Uh, They varied in size, but, but one is reported to have covered an area of about 150 by 200 feet. And was about 80 feet high. Others could be even taller than that. Uh, Some commentators suggest 30 stories in in modern terms. The defining feature of ziggurats was that they were a series of platforms. And there were stairs to take you up to each platform. And as you went up, each platform was slightly smaller than the one below it. And so it was sort of this cone shape going up. And uh, as you got to the top... Uh, On the very top platform, you would construct a temple where you could worship whatever god or goddess the ziggurat was dedicated to. And that's perhaps why it says here in verse 4 that the top of their tower would be in the heavens or the skies. They wanted to be able to say that they had reached out to the gods, that they could commune with the gods, that they had reached the level that the gods were on. Look again at their motivation, verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us devote ourselves to projects and great big structures that speak to the world about how great we are and how important we are and how wonderful we are. The arrogance of human ambition There's no denying that human beings are capable of fantastic achievements. We can build great big things. We can accomplish all kinds of feats. And we're constantly trying to outdo ourselves. We're we're always working as a a species. We're always working towards the next big thing. And and no sooner have we done it than we're asking, what's next? In 2007, a great inventor stood before a room packed full of people. 
All the people in the room were on the edge of their seat to, to hear what this inventor had to say and to see what he would show to them. They were hanging on his every word. The people had heard, you see, that this man had invented a phone with a screen that you could control by just touching it with your fingers. That inventor was Steve Jobs. His invention was the iPhone. And you can find the original presentation of the first iPhone on YouTube. And it's very interesting if you watch a little bit of it. You can feel the excitement in that room to see the first iPhone. To see the first uh, smartphone as we have them today. And, they get, and, and Steve Jobs got a round of applause for just doing simple things like swiping up and down. Or making a phone call or playing a video on this new device. That's just part of life now. Our children will never be amazed by that. They'll be asking, what's next? Imagine if the people of Babel had been able to see the skyscrapers of Shanghai or New York City. They'd have been in awe. Imagine what they would think of the stadiums that are getting built nowadays. These palaces, these beautiful, luxurious, jaw-dropping buildings. We've walked on the surface of the moon. We've landed robots on the surface of Mars and beamed live footage of a different planet back to our planet. We've created stunning images on canvas or on film. We've jumped and run and flown higher and faster than anyone thought possible. We've invented hip replacements and cancer treatments and COVID treatments. Human beings are capable of great and amazing things, friends. But the sad thing is that more often than not, human beings are concerned to make a name for ourselves rather than give glory to the name of God. You know I enjoy playing football and used to enjoy watching it as a Manchester United fan. But football is a religion for many people. You hear the way commentators talk about it during the match for these players tonight, the chance of immortality. What does that mean? Making a name for ourselves. Politicians and the things they choose to prioritise or to talk about. So often it's about making a name for themselves. As a prime minister or president comes towards the end of their time in office. The word legacy begins to get used. What will will they be remembered for? What should they spend their time on so that they make an impact in the history books? And what about you and me? Are we living, friends, to make a name for ourselves? Is your goal to be able to say, I earn this much money. I've taken my family to this or that holiday resort. Our church has this many people. I've seen this, been there, done that. All without a thought for God and what he commands and what he, uh, and what he demands of our lives. The arrogance of human ambition, leaving God out of the picture, not considering what his word and his will has to say. So having thought about the arrogance of human ambition, I want to think secondly about God's perspective on humanity united. God's perspective on humanity united. Verse 5 is the turning point in the story of the Tower of Babel. Look what it says. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now if you're not a fan of ironic humour, you're really not going to understand this verse. 
Uh, but the whole point of it, friends, is to emphasize how small, how, how laughable, how insignificant this tower is in God's sight. Here's this great tower. It's taken these people an awful lot of time and energy and thought to, to get together. Look, we've, we've made our bricks out of clay and, and we've figured out how to use uh, bitumen for our mortar. And Oh, look at this. We're going to paint this platform this color. We're going to paint the next platform that color. And it's going to reach to the heavens. God says, where exactly is it? I need to come down and have a good look here and, and see where this great tower is. Oh, that little thing. Oh, right, okay, good job. Well, you've given that a good go. This is God's perspective on the best efforts of combined humanity. Is that the best you can do? Parents, have you ever been called into one of your little toddler's bedrooms or maybe outside where they're playing and and they're very excited for you to come and see something that they've been working on? Maybe they're very pleased with a messy little drawing on a page or they built their blocks up in some particular way and they plead with you to come and look at it and you sort of have to summon your best and very impressed tone. And of course we love our children very much and even those little accomplishments that they're so excited about uh, mean something to us that they're that excited but there's something of that sort of anti-climax the greater looking down and the lesser and, and not really seeing anything of any significance in this passage. And you see, friends, that's what our God sees when he looks at even the very best, the most impressive of what man has accomplished. He has to look very hard to see anything at all. Man rises up with all his might and then he falls away. I've already mentioned some of the great civilizations of the ancient world, civilizations that took shape very soon after this incident of Babel. Mesopotamia and Egypt. Greece, Rome, what happened to them? They crumbled. As they indulged in their wealth, their food and drink, their sexual appetites, as they walked around their gorgeous buildings and their pagan temples, suddenly the enemies were at the gate and it all came tumbling down. In the 20th century, we saw the rise of Hitler and Stalin. Evil men, but ambitious men who achieved incredible, albeit dreadful things. But now they're gone. So much for Hitler's thousand year Reich. The cause they proclaimed has died with them. And yet, friends, the arrogant, rebellious pride of human beings continues today. Instead, politicians insist on making pronouncements about all the great things they're going to achieve. We're going to solve climate change. Really? We're going to eliminate poverty. You sure? Poverty's been part of human existence for thousands of years. Some people, the only cause they're interested in championing and fighting for is their own. My body, my choice. I'm free to make my own decisions. I define my identity. And people march under that banner and people speak of being united under those causes. And you're not going to tell us what to do. Look at all that we're achieving. Look at how the world is celebrating us. The God who made us and rules over us has to really stoop down to see anything of any significance going on. 
doesn't see anyone or anything that comes close to threatening him or reaching him or impressing him. And he sees very few who are calling upon him. It's as the psalmist says in Psalm 14 verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah announces God's rebuke and judgment upon several pagan nations, similarly to what we read from Zephaniah earlier. And of course, one of the nations that Isaiah pronounces judgment on is Babylon. Here's what Isaiah has to say to the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms? One minute he's up, the next minute he's gone. You see, the natural inclination of the world is we can reach God, or in some cases we are gods. This was the temptation that Satan laid before Adam and Eve right at the beginning. You can become like God, but we can't. Our best efforts are feeble. God has to look down a long way to see any of them. You can't reach God by building a tower of good deeds. You can't reach God by building up a lifetime of achievements. You can't become like God by becoming the fittest, the most beautiful, the most accomplished, the most popular. All our efforts, friends, are a drop in the ocean compared to the greatness, the majesty, the holiness of God. He is God and we are not. He is holy and we are not. He is eternal and we are not. But whilst the perspective of God is a rebuke for arrogant, sinful human beings, it's also a great encouragement, friends, is it not, for us who are Christians. So much of our world is set against God so much of the time. And that becomes a bit demoralizing and frustrating for us as Christians, especially as we can remember times when perhaps that wasn't the case in our own nation in particular. And yes, we might get worn down and we might get discouraged and at times we might be intimidated by the attacks on free speech or the attacks on Christians elsewhere in the world. But friends, let's remember God's perspective on the attacks of our enemies. They are tiny. They are laughable. It's temporary. It's his kingdom that's eternal. And so whether it's the relentless propaganda of the LGBT lobby who seem to have convinced every TV advert director at the minute to include a same-sex couple, as though there's one in every home in the nation. Whether it's attacks on Christian free speech in the UK, or far more violent attacks on Christians in places like China or North Korea. Friends, he who sits in the heavens laughs, laughs at the foolish ambitions and sinful attempts of man to fight against him. Will they succeed? No. Will they last? No. Is it any any real threat to the kingdom of God? No. So be encouraged, Christian. From God's perspective, Babel is tiny. The ambitions of men are small. 
The best efforts of the world to, de- to disrupt or to defeat the kingdom of God is a drop in the ocean. So the arrogance of human ambition, God's perspective on humanity united. And thirdly and finally this evening, God's plan for humanity dispersed. God's plan on humanity dispersed. Remember remember again rather God's express command. Genesis 9 verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. So God decides if human beings won't scatter voluntarily across the earth. I will scatter them across the earth. Look at verse 7. This is God speaking. Notice by the way the language hinting at the Trinity. Similar to what we find Uh, Back at the beginning of Genesis, when God came to create mankind, uh, he said then, come, let us make man in our image. Look here, verse 7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And again here, there's humor in the passage. Uh, In the original language, the Hebrew, uh, the phrase, come, let us make bricks. That's what the, the, the men of Babel said, come, let us make bricks. It sounds very, very similar in Hebrew to the words, come let us confuse, spoken by God. The point is, friends, here that we have a battle of the wills, the will of men and the will of God. Come let us make bricks or come let us confuse. Who's going to win that battle of wills? God. God succeeds here by creating confusion between human beings. Human beings had spoken one language up until this point. And just out of interest, uh, the Archaeological Institute of America and many other respected uh, bodies like that are in broad agreement now that humanity did once speak one language, sometimes referred to as Pi. You can look that up when you go home. Uh, but So there was one language at the beginning. The Bible tells us that. Even uh, secular sources agree with that. But now suddenly God creates multiple languages. We don't know how he does this, but he does it. All of a sudden, people cannot work together because they can't communicate with one another. Some of you think, that's my workplace tomorrow morning. Uh, But so the, the people here are forced to disperse because they cannot understand one another anymore. And so they scatter and they become the nations filling the earth that God has always intended them to be. Why does God do this? Why does he... Obviously, it's a form of judgment, but why does he bring this judgment in this particular way? Well, for one thing, friends, a healthy friction should exist between the nations. And by that, I do not mean violence or war. But there is such a thing as healthy competition between human beings. Think of scientific discoveries, for example, or sporting competitions, the World Cup, the Olympics. Diversity can be a great thing. It can be an enjoyable thing. Some of you perhaps have had the opportunity to travel to completely different cultures from our own. Uh, and it's humbling and it's, in, and it's interesting and, and you learn from other people uh, living in a completely different nation to our own. And God is glorified in the diversity of the nations. That's one of the reasons he scattered them here at Babel. But there was another reason that God dispersed them. If you look at verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
Now we need to understand what God means by that. He is of course in no way threatened by what human beings might accomplish if they remain united. What he's actually saying here is that human beings are a threat to themselves if they continue to work on these ungodly ambitions together. Scattering of the nations, friends, is a limit. It is a restraint on the damage that human beings could otherwise do if they were fully united. The more human beings tend to concentrate power, resources, ambitions, oftentimes the more damage that is done. Again, think of, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, what would you say, a, a drastic example. It's an extreme example. But nonetheless, think of Nazi Germany. How so many thousands, if not millions, rallied under Hitler's banner. Look at the Chinese Communist Party today. Look at Russia with power and plans concentrated in the ungodly hands of a few. And of Vlad- Vladimir Putin in particular. When human beings create big government and big plans and big ambitions, friends, the results can be catastrophic because human beings are sinful. I'm not saying that political or economic or academic cooperation between nations or governments is always wrong. Of course not. There are many situations where it is perfectly good and sensible and beneficial for human beings to to work together across borders and Across political divides. But we have to be very careful. Many of the nations. Including our own today. Are nations with a Babylonian world view. With globalist ambitions. Organisations like the European Union. Or the WHO. They are run by people with a particular world view. They believe the same thing, essentially, that the people of Babel believed. We can make a name for ourselves. We can solve our own problems. Human beings are basically good, and so human beings need no saviour other than ourselves. That is the dominant worldview of many of the most influential politicians, business leaders, media and cultural influencers in our nation and others like us today. And God scattered the nations of Babel, friends, to keep that worldview in check. To stop humanity from getting any worse. And Revelation and other passages in the Bible would suggest that one of the signs that Christ's return is imminent. Is if one uh, united effort of human beings, one united government of human beings begins to wreak havoc and destruction in the world. That is one of the signs of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And until then, it is kept at arm's length. It is limited by the scattering of the nations. But there's another aspect to God's scattering of the nations, and in many ways a more positive one. And that is that God scattered the nations at this time to unite them eventually on his terms. God scattered the nations to eventually unite them together on his terms. As I said at the beginning, Genesis 11 brings us to a bridge point in the book of Genesis. Up until now, we've been concerned largely with world events, creation, the flood, Babel. But what's the next thing that Moses is going to tell us about for the rest of the book? One man's family, Abraham. 
And as we'll see when we pick up our studies at the end of Genesis 11 and on into Genesis 12. The reason that we will focus on Abraham is because God has not turned his back on the nations. In fact, it's precisely because he cares about the nations that he's going to call Abraham and make promises to Abraham. The name Abram, which is his original name, means exalted father. God changed his name, of course, in Genesis 17, 5 to Abraham. And Abraham means father of many nations. Through Abraham, God is eventually going to provide a way for the nations to be united again. Not in arrogant projects like Babel, but united in glorifying and worshipping and praising the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the king of all the nations. The Bible finishes by giving us a glimpse of the nations properly and fully united. The new Jerusalem. Remember the two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. People from all tribes and nations and languages. Crying out with a loud voice. A united voice once more. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where history is headed, friends. This is the great truth that we gather to proclaim here each week. This is the good news for all people, regardless of unionism, nationalism, republicanism, male or female, black or white, rich or poor. Salvation is from the Lord. For all peoples. That's what should bring people together. That's what should unite us. Not political or economic or other globalist ideas that are centered on the glory of man. But worship centered on the name of Jesus Christ. And so this evening as we close. Are you a citizen of Jerusalem or a citizen of Babylon? Are you making a name for yourself or are you living to make known the name of Jesus Christ to your friends, to your family, to your neighbours, to all the nations? Are you going to be part of that great multitude made up of people with different names, different nationalities to you, but all united together once again with one language and one voice declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne? Unto the Lamb. Amen.